Hello. Hello. Wow, it's Hello. been one week a deli- minute. Sorry, you know all the lyrics. Take it yeah, away. I do. Oh my God, I will never forget the time that I sang that song at Myrna's karaoke, and this beautiful drunk man in the front row just started yelling to everyone that he saw. She knows all the words. She knows all the words. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, thank you. I kind of stranger. I do know all the words to the Bare Naked Ladies song one week. You anyway, know, Reagan walked the baby town. <laughs> Fuck off. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> it was only a matter of time until we said it at the same time. I'm pretty sure I squeaked mine in under yours. Um, but we'll go sure. back to the tapes. We can well, call it. We can call it yeah. at the same time if you want to. Same time. In unison. Hmm. Mhm. Mhm. We'll mm-hmm. see what the recording says. Oh yeah. That I will actually actively do um, for listeners because of my procrastination. <laughs> we have a lost episode that we're just gonna redo because it was just gonna. Time. We're just gonna do it again. Um, also, I would argue it's not due to your procrastination. It's due to the nightmare that you've been living. My horrible fucking nightmare two months that I've had. Um, yeah, so, uh, sweet listenership. I don't know why I'm talking like I'm in Downton Abbey all of a sudden, but. 100% believe that you would say listenerships. And I was like, don't insult them. My sweet listenerships, um, please understand that it's not because we hate you that we suddenly took another, like, basically season-long break. Um, it's because my living situation turned into a horrible nightmare. Oh God, I just burped in the middle of my in, in the middle of nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, that was this good. is we're off to a stellar start so far. Um, we're three minutes in and we are absolutely nailing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're gonna release a little tiny, uh, bite-sized, non-babe-related episode so that if you want to hear about my horrible nightmare time, uh. Mine and Evan's horrible nightmare time. You can. It's, I love that you call it bite size. Yeah, it's going to be probably pretty mondo. It's going to be like 45 minutes. Yeah, it's going like, to be. It's, yeah. It is a saga. It's a whole thing. It's a whole it's thing. A horrible, horrible saga. Please don't worry. Everyone's safe and fine. And Evan and I are fine. Like, it's fine now. Yeah. Um but it was expensive and terrible, and um, we were we were without a home for a hot minute, um, and luckily have some very perfect friends who <laughs> took us in. Mm-hmm. So, if you're interested in that, um, that'll be on its way to you shortly, yeah. sometime. Yeah, we'll and then we'll redo that other episode. And then we'll have- be like. It'll be like boom, boom, right. boom. You're going to have so much uh, of us to listen to, and I apologize for that. The content. The content will be. It's coming at you. The Like where. The quantity will be more than it has been. The quality will be about the same. The same. It'll be the exact same. The exact same. I have a better internet connection now, though, so maybe not. Maybe a little scooch better. True. Yeah. Just a scooch, though. Don't want to don't wanna get people's hopes up. Quality, uh. <laughs> Pulled itself up by its bootstraps, as they say. Sure did. Whatever those are. are the, okay. Just so like the Republicans wanted it to. 
Too much? Is that too much? That's too much. <laughs> it was the perfect amount. And my, my God. <laughs> I was about to ask what the straps are, but I don't even care anymore. That was so good. I feel like bootstraps are probably those things that like I'm picturing I'm picturing suspenders that connect to your boots. <laughs> Wait, that's better than what I was gonna say. I was gonna say those things that like you know if you're if you've got like kind of tight boots and it's like a stick that you stick in to your boots so that oh, your ankle can like horn. a shoehorn. I had Thank to use you. one of those when my foot was broken. <laughs> I'm I think those things are hilarious. They I are. remember I remember the first time that I saw a shoehorn. Clearly, for some reason, this is like a memory that just sticks out into my brain because oh, I'm please. broken. <laughs> I'm deeply broken. Um, and I remember seeing a shoehorn and asking my grandma, like, what is this for? And she was like, oh, it's for like, you know, if you've got boots that like don't really fit, you can just stick your foot in there and it'll just like shove it in there. And I was like, why not just buy bigger shoes then like I've never I'm I'm 28 and I've never once felt the need for a shoehorn I I only needed one when my foot was like I couldn't have the back of my shoe I couldn't rub my heel against the back of a shoe yeah and so I needed to like pull the shoe away from me to like swoop yeah it was a great time anyway um, you're drinking champagne. I say we I kind know. of cheated. We already know what each other are drinking. It's true. We've been talking for almost an hour at this point. But for those at home, <laughs> I'm drinking, drinking champagne. A pint of champagne, and it's almost gone. I may have to pause and get another bevy. Some more. This. Ugh, don't say bevy. How dare you? I already did. I'm drinking a black cherry white claw because I've lost control of my life. It's the worst kind. Why? It's the worst one. I know. Well, it's because I got, I got like the variety pack, you know, and yeah. then I just grabbed one. So I figure if I get the black cherry out of the way early, there you go. Then I don't have to worry about it when I just randomly grab one, you know. The reason why I hate it is turns out the reason why so many people love it, and it's because it tastes exactly like a Jolly Rancher, and. For me, it does taste like a Jolly Rancher. It tastes exactly like a Jolly Rancher, which I've never liked in the first place. No. And I don't like when my drinks are that sweet. No. And so I'm just 100% against black cherry, but apparently that is the exact drawing factor for a lot of people. Weird. It's definitely the worst one of the original flavors. I think the new one's watermelon's the worst one. I don't think I've had watermelon. Um. Okay. Well, like I said before, before we start recording, I'm pretty sure that you're going first. I've yeah. finally done it and pulled it out. And if you're going second, I'm going to be shocked. Okay. Um, well, that's my feeling. My babe was born in 1924. Yes. Yeah, I'm 19, first. 19. Oh, I'm not going to tell you. You're first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I can't figure out how to get you... Half scream? Does it matter? I don't. I don't think it matters. I think that's a. I think that's a personal preference, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um. I guess nobody is like watching us either. Yeah, it's just us. Literally just audios. It's fine. Um. Okay. Have you ever heard of Veronica Maz? A. No, I haven't. 
B. Not for sure you were going to be like, yes. <laughs> wow. B. Babe, hers was a Veronica. Okay, continue. Were you guys trying to guess the V? I wasn't. He was. I was yeah. like, VM. And he just started listing the <laughs> Yeah. Okay, carry on, um, Veronica. Okay, so sweet Veronica was born October 15th, 1924, just outside Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. in some town that I can't pronounce. So she was born just outside of Pittsburgh. There it is. Um, her parents owned and ran a bar. That's about all I know. Um, heads up just a little disclaimer about this lady it's going to be a pretty short because there is not very much information about her at all which is a damn shame and b um it's mostly going to be about thing like organizations that she started rather than like her actual life so um she graduated from the university of pittsburgh in 1947 she got her doctorate in sociology from there in I wrote 1853, 1953. Wow. Um, From there, she taught at Lake Erie College for Women in Painesville, Ohio. And then she doubled back to New York and she taught at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs. And then finally, she goes down to Washington, D.C. and starts teaching sociology at Georgetown in the 60s. Okay. So this lady's all over the place. Um, But D.C. is kind of like her. That's where she's. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the late 60s, she takes two of her sociology students to, quote, see poverty up close. So she talks a lot about how, like, as a sociologist, she was the most interested in talking to people from all walks of life, from yeah. all sorts of situations. Um, so she took two of her sociology students and they went and talked to some homeless people who were cooking chicken over fire barrels underneath a bridge and she was like hey let's have a conversation and so she just talked to them and she said um so she did a little blurb for the washington post so i'm just going to read you this whole quote she said quote and then i was going back to my car and my real nice comfortable home and a man fell down right in front of me right on the sidewalk and i just walked around him and got in my car and when i got in my car i started talking to myself i said why didn't you help him well i just assumed he was drunk well what if he were drunk he could have had a heart attack All that night I didn't sleep. It bothered me personally. Whatever these sensitivities that you grow up with that you're not even conscious of. So she like had this moment where she was like, wait a minute, like what the fuck? Like that's a person that fell down in front of me and I just walked around him. And so from then on she was like, okay, we're changing this. And so she, um, it's so, it's just so cool to like realize that she, acknowledged her own privilege and then was like fuck that i'm changing that so she yeah it's so because so many people myself included are taught to help certain people yeah and other people oh well excuse 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 and so it's really cool to watch someone of their own volition it's very much that thing of like well maybe they were drunk and it's like they're still a so person. So what if they were drunk? Who cares? Yeah, yes. who cares? Yes. Yeah. Um, so she uh, very soon after left academia entirely to pursue a a new career of social work, basically. Um, so she started talking to a priest who was named Reverend Horace McKenna, and he was known for helping the poor, helping the indigent, helping abused 
members of the community. And she started talking to him about, you know, like, how can we go about helping these people? And she knew almost immediately that she wanted to start a soup kitchen because she was seeing all of these people that it was and it was kind of the perfect time too because right in the 70s was when um there were so many people that were deinstitutionalized from mental hospitals and then sent out into the world that had no support for them at all there was n- there was no there were no programs which also for that i don't i don't know um like a timeline of facilities with mental health um capacities like the capacity to help people with mental health illnesses. Um, so do you know, you may not know the answer to this, was the 70s a time where they were actually helping people or was it still in the time no. of like, no, oh, you're very crazy. Much, yes, it was very much in that because this this priest um, even talks about how like, like there were so many people who didn't even know that that was an issue that was happening. Like churches even didn't know that there were people in need that had been deinstitutionalized that then were sent out into a world that was not designed for them with no support at all. So, so Veronica started seeing that there were people and she was very much aware of um, the fact that homelessness is not a, it's, it's not a far off, thing for many people like no like somebody losing their job somebody getting evicted could be all that stands between most of society and being quote-unquote homeless that's Um, one thing that i really hope this pandemic has showed people yeah is yeah continue sorry yeah it's it the she was very much uh aware of the idea that like you're not homeless because you're lazy. You're homeless because there have been a series of situations that have happened that in many cases are far beyond your control, you know? And so like life took a big old shit on you. Yeah. So, um, and she was, she was seeing and was aware of the fact that there were all of these people who were like digging around in trash cans outside of restaurants. And she said that they were competing with rats for food. So she was like, I want to start a soup kitchen. That's the first thing I want to do. Um, but she, she said, quote, I knew nothing about soup kitchens. <laughs> like she even was like, I don't know how to do this. I have no idea. But, um, she recognized that the first thing that she would need would, would be spoons. And so there was a big apartment complex across the street from her. And she went and talked to one of her neighbors and was like, Hey, do you have any soup spoons that you're not using? Cause like I'll use them. And so her neighbor gave her some, and then her neighbor told her neighbors, and by the end of that afternoon, Veronica had 75 soup spoons that had just Amazing. been donated and had a whole bunch of people all of a sudden who she could depend on and mm-hmm. were kind of in on this thing from the ground floor. Yeah. So um, her and Reverend McKenna both together started the soup kitchen so others might eat or some. Um, and in 1971, they served their first bowl of soup. Um, she would like travel around DC, just scouring for leftovers. She would go to like fast food chains and ask if they have any fried chicken after the end of the day. She would go to caterers and ask if they had any sandwiches left over supermarkets. She would get day old bread, like just everywhere she was going and was like, where's the food that you're going to throw out? Otherwise that's still perfectly good. Like it might be a little bit stale, but yes, it's still food. It's (laughs) not spoiled. Right. It's still 
yeah, it's still edible, nutritious food. So um, within two years, some becomes DC's largest soup kitchen, which is pretty fucking cool. Um, So it starts expanding slowly into a halfway house and then it starts becoming a counseling center for recovering alcoholics. But funding was always an issue. Um, She almost I mean, she could never really get consistent city funding for it. Um, She said, quote, everybody claims to be so interested in poverty, but it's just words, 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 (laughs) which is the whole thing. That she was, I mean, that's the whole reason that I was like, I have to fucking do this lady. There's not a ton of information on her, but the idea that she saw it in action and then recognized it in herself and was like, no, I'm changing this. Like, mm, yeah, dude, love to see it. So um, the one thing that she did notice from all of the lines that were at some, she noticed that it was just like droves of women that were coming in. Um, She realized that there were always going to be places for men to go, but that beds for women who were running from all sorts of situations, they were really hard to come by. She was like, you know, Good Samaritan, all these places, they only have a couple of beds that are dedicated for women and very few actual like women focused programs. So she convinces the SUM board a few years later to open the Shalom house and it had enough space for eight women. It had enough beds for eight people. Um, and in the first week that it was open in 1973, 200 women showed up. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So uh, 1976, she finally starts the house of Ruth. Um, she said, quote, everyone assumes that women are taken care of, but it just isn't true. They need someone. We're trying to be that someone. So um, she wrote a book while well, she wrote many books while the House of Ruth, while she was the president of the House of Ruth. But um, one that she wrote is called Call Me Ruth. And it's just a compilation book of all of the women's stories that stayed there, which like. Wow. I bet is a a heavy read. Um, So after the House of Ruth is up and running, uh, she's like, all right, cool. This seems set. Looks like there's another population that I got to help. So she starts Martha's Table. That's her next nonprofit that she started. Um, So we're up to three so far. Social programs focused on different groups in D.C.'s community that need help. Uh, Wait, the the newest one will be four, right? No, because it's some, which is the soup kitchen. And And then Shalom. Shalom House is still kind of part of some. Got it. Okay. Um, And then House of Ruth is House of Ruth women's shelter so then she starts martha's table um it's her next venture it's focused on solely getting food to hungry kids because she realized that there are lots and lots and lots of kids who don't have any food there's a really sweet story that i didn't really like detail in here so i don't have a ton of the details but there's a story that one of the kids showed up um to get his lunch and it cost like three cents and he was like i don't have it she was like i don't care she was like this is she was like, right now, this is about you eating and then you can, it doesn't matter. Like three cents is, yeah. it doesn't matter. Um, so it also had a food truck element that roamed around DC that was called McKenna's Wagon after the Reverend that helped her start all of it. Um, by that point he had died. And so it was kind of her like memorial to him. Mm-hmm. Um, Martha's Table now, currently, current day, feeds up to 200 kids a day. So many kids. That's so many. Kids. So many kids. Um, yeah. So the current 
president of Martha's Table is a lady named Patty Stonecipher, and she used to be the uh, like chairperson of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So she's like, oh wow, yeah, she into it shit. with yeah. Um, and she said that talking about Veronica's like whole ideology about it, she said, quote. If you do it for your next door neighbors, you must do it for all. That sense permeated all she did. I love her. I Dude. love her. Um, and that's like, that's kind of it. That's kind of all that there is out there about her. Um, all three of her organizations are still up and running. They're all still doing incredible work. We'll make sure and post the links to them in case you have spare cash that you want to donate. Or if you're from DC and want Dude. to help out those communities. Um, she eventually moved to Beaver County, Pennsylvania to help start a soup kitchen. And she died there in 2014 at the age of 89 after complications from a broken hip. Um, as the Washington Post puts it, quote, she was widely regarded as a patron saint of Washington's hungry, indigent, abused, and disposed. Wow. Um, she said as a last kind of little, like, perfect summation of her whole thing. She said, quote, I can start anything anywhere and it's work, but people will always help. Which is like kind of all that she relied on is like people being willing to help out. And it's really cool that they did. Yeah. Like, wow, that's, yeah. We all need more people like that. Yep. We all need to be more like that, I guess I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Veronica Maz. Damn, dude. Not a lot of info. Um, most of that, honestly, like 97% of that came from one Washington Post article called Veronica Maz Helped Start Three DC Social Service Agencies Dies at 89, written by Adam Bernstein. Um, the Beaver County Times had a really cute thing about her when she moved to Beaver County, where they were like, this lady started a soup kitchen and now she's here to do it here which is very cute um and it was written by larissa theodore it's called soup kitchen founder has plans for beaver county oh um and then there was a georgetown university article it didn't have a byline so i don't know who wrote it but um it was about the current house of ruth leader who's a lady named sandra jackson and she was winning the legacy of a dream award for her work there. And Amazing. they talk a lot about like, yeah, we kind of wish that Veronica could see what yeah. all is happening now. Cause like, I think she'd be pretty blown away by it, but yeah, it's, it's really fun. Like looking at how long she spent in each organization. Cause you can tell she's, she stayed at the top of it just long enough to get it off the ground. And then was like, okay, here, somebody else Next. take it. But house of Ruth, um, from the time that she started it in the seventies, it's only ever had women running it. Amazing. Which is as great. It sh- as, it should. as it should. It's a women's shelter. Should. Yeah, of course. Of course. <sighs> God. So, yeah. So, if uh, folks have any disposable income that they feel like throwing at three really solid nonprofits, we'll put those links up. Yeah, dude. That's so amazing. That. Good job. What a babe. Thanks. What a babe. Dude, what a babe. Yeah. Cool, cool lady. Very cool lady. Cool lady. <laughs> cool lady who, like, is exactly what everybody should be doing with their privilege in 2020. Yes. You know, identifying it and being like, how do I fix this and make this better? Yeah. Working on it, you know? 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's a lifelong process because a lot of these prejudices are so deeply ingrained. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean. I mean, me. she was 40 when she opened. Give up. When she opened some, she was 40. So like, yeah. too late. not that 40 is old, but like, yeah. it's not like a lot of these where they start off when they're like 22, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So. Wow. Good job, dude. Thanks. All right. Relax. Sit back. Maybe prepare to cry some real tears. Uh, I did today. I might again. Uh, Have you ever heard, Taylor, of Ruth Coker Burks? The name sounds very familiar to me. Okay, but you might want you might want the story. It might be it might be that situation where it's like a couple of details, but like. Never yeah. could connect it, but hit me. I'm ready. Um, wow. It's, she ha, she's quite a lady. So Frances Ruth Coker Burks was born March 19th, 1959, and grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas, was childhood buddies with Bill Clinton. Like, sure. The what? cutest little childhood. <laughs> so since the, ni- since the 1800s, her family had lived in the same area, and most of them were buried in the same cemetery. It's called Files Cemetery. I think it's it, it looks like it's Files. It may be Files, who knows, but it looks like Files Cemetery. So it's this little bitty cemetery that a one of the journalists who was writing an article about her like went to see it and was like, most people don't even see it as they drive by. Like it's this cute little place off the highway and people just speed by and don't even notice. So when she was young, her mother got into a huge fight with her uncle and swore that he would never be buried there. He like the rest of his kin would never be buried there. And so to prove it, she quietly bought up all the plots in that cemetery. Her mom bought 262 cemetery plots just so he and his family could not be buried there. What a weird and specifically petty move. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so her mom would take her to visit the cemetery most Sundays after church. And she would be like very, it was very like Lion King. She'd be like, someday all of this is going to be yours. You're going to inherit this whole cemetery. Yeah. And Ruth's like, I'm 10. What am I going to do with the cemetery? Like, this is, this, okay, that's weird. Little did she know. So she grows up. She saw obviously no immediate need for the cemetery. She just kind of went on with her life. She got married. She got divorced. She's raising a daughter. She's working as a real estate agent. She's I love that these are all just like quick bullet points. Yeah. Like a marriage, a divorce, it's, got a kid. Yeah. It's not the <laughs> cares. It's not moving on. <laughs> so we jump ahead to 1984. Okay. Ruth is visiting her friend Bonnie in the hospital and Bonnie has cancer. And apparently Bonnie was receiving like a series of surgeries. And so Ruth said she spent most of that year in the hospital with her. So one day she's walking down a hallway and Ruth noticed a door that was covered in a red plastic bag. And there were nurses outside drawing straws to see who had to go inside. And they kept being like, okay, wait, best two out of three. No, 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 let's, let's draw again. Let's draw again. So she waited until they were doing something else and she snuck into the room. And inside was a young man who weighed less than a hundred pounds and she knew it was AIDS. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. What the luck, dude. Super buried the lead on this one. (laughs) Buckle up. I didn't even 
Oh my God. Of course it's the eighties. Yep. Yep. (sighs) Okay. So Ruth had a gay cousin in Hawaii. Yeah. So she's asking him about it. He's like, don't worry. It's just those guys in San Francisco. Like, don't worry about us. It's a specific thing. And she's like, I don't really feel like that's true. So she starts doing a bunch of research, a bunch of research on it, like figuring out what's going on. So as soon as he sees her without any protective gear, without any gloves, without any, everything, he just breaks down and says, like, he wants to see his mom. He wants his mom. Okay, in the hospital. Yes. Okay. Um, she leaves the room, and the nurses were like, did you just did you just go in there? And she said, sorry, quote, I said, well, yeah, he wants his mother. They laughed. They said, quote, honey, his mother's not coming. He's been here six weeks. Nobody's coming. Nobody's been here, and nobody's coming. So... She manages to, like, get the mother's phone number out of them by I don't know what means, intimidation or threats or what have you. And the first time she calls, she gets hung up on. Second time she calls, before the mother of this young man can hang up, she's basically like, if you hang up on me, I'm going to publish his obituary in your hometown paper and I'm going to list the cause of death. And so his mother stays on the phone and she's like, oh, my God, she's berating Ruth saying like my son died years ago he's a sinner he you know blah blah blah. he's dead to me she didn't want to know when he died and she said that she would not claim his body when he did so for those who don't know we're gonna do a a oh my god wait am I oh my god I can see where this is going she's got a whole fucking cemetery Uh okay okay so we're gonna do a scoop of context for those who may not know the 80s AIDS crisis uh, Reagan is president. AIDS had obviously been around for years, but the crisis really started in 1980. It wouldn't be until September 1985 that Reagan publicly said the word AIDS. And it wasn't until much later they actually did something about it, which was not much. And right. way too fucking late. Right. Early, one of his staff members joked about the AIDS crisis in a press conference. Um, at the time, it was known as GRID, or Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. A lot of people called it the gay plague. A lot of people called it gay cancer. And apparently when the AIDS crisis hit Arkansas, the fear, prejudice, discrimination was one person who I'll mention later on. He describes it as a brick wall, like they were just thrown up against it. And he was like, if someone so much as lost a few pounds, no one would touch them. No one would talk to them. They would be completely shunned. All the while, people are fucking dying at yeah. that point. And nobody's believing them. Nobody is paying attention or caring. That yep. Because they're sinners and it's their fault. Also, for those who can't see, there were strong air quotes around those. Big, strong air quotes. Strong air quotes. So at this point, 1984, almost 8,000 people had died of AIDS in the U.S. But let's not talk about it. You know, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Also, for those who can't see, my dog just came over to comfort me. Hi, baby. So cute. You're doing great. Thank you. Cute lady. Okay, so jump back to the hospital. Ruth is pissed at the nurses. She's pissed at the mom. She doesn't know what to tell this sweet, dying young man. She goes back to Bonnie's room, explains what's happening. And Bonnie is like, I'm okay right now. He needs you. I don't. Go be with him. So she goes back in the room. She doesn't know what she's going to tell him. And immediately he thinks... She's his mom. So he's like, mom, you came, you're here. And she's like, I didn't know what to do. So she talks with him. She soothes him. She, pat, you know, like she starts telling him about her cemetery. 
and you know, all this stuff. And she sat with him for 13 hours until he died. So after he died, his mother still refused to take his body. Yeah. Buckle up. So Ruth found a funeral home in another town that would cremate him because most didn't want to touch him or touch the body. Oh my God. And then she went, she couldn't find a uh, urn for him. (laughs) I know. I know. Valkyrie, can you just settle, please, and stop nosing my microphone? Lay down. I'm sorry. That was so cute. Could you just hear a little, like, boop? Yeah, I could just hear. This is what I heard. <laughs> that was her That's nose. That's all that I heard. That was it was so nose. cute. Hi, can you, can you lay down, please? Good girl. Okay, here we go. Okay, so. Okay. So she sent we... him to another funeral home in a different town. Maybe okay. we need these little bright spots in the middle of this incredibly depressing Honestly, story. yeah. Um, so she can't find an urn for him. So she goes to another town where her friend owns a bakery and gets a chipped, cracked, like used cookie jar and uses that for his ashes. She took him home to her family cemetery. She used a post holer to dig a hole in the middle of her father's grave and buried him there. She said she knew her father wouldn't mind. He would be proud of her and he would watch over that young man. Quote, See, it's a very depressing story, but like, thank Jesus that this I mean, movie existed. And I, this is exists. the beginning. Yeah, I know. I like what I mean, the fact that she. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I hope we can all be a little bit more like her. Yeah. So she said, quote, I always wondered what I was going to do with the cemetery. Who knew there'd come a time when people didn't want to bury their children? <sighs> so wow. that that day started a whole movement. So when hospitals, pharmacies, preachers, whoever, whenever someone contacted them and they were like, please help, I have AIDS, they'd be like, absolutely not. Go see this lady. She'll help you. Uh, she said it never occurred to her to be afraid. She just knew she was doing what she was supposed to do. Yeah. She said, quote, they just started coming. Word got out that there was this kind of wacko woman in Hot Springs who wasn't afraid. They would tell them, just go to her. Don't come to me. Here's the name and number. Go. I was their hospice. Their gay friends were their hospice. Their companions were their hospice. Uh, quote, I was doing it without any help for a couple of years. I didn't want anyone knowing that I was doing what I was doing until after my daughter's daddy died in an automobile accident in 1988 because there wasn't a judge alive who wouldn't have taken my daughter away from me. Dude. Wow. Yeah. So word gets around in her community. They start calling her the AIDS woman. They start blaming her for bringing AIDS to Arkansas. Ew. What? That is the opposite of what I thought you were going to say. No, nope. I mean, I guess I should have mm-hmm. anticipated it because people are the worst. People are the worst. And okay, but also, apparently, people are not the worst because we have covered two very incredible... Sure. A great two. point. A large portion of people are the worst. So many people are the worst. Thankfully, there are some who are not the worst who are willing to help anyone in need. Um, oh, wow. So she's a member of her church's finance committee. And she once asked the ministers for a room of the church to conduct monthly aid support group meetings. He said and I bet they responded like a church should. Mm-hmm. Super duper. I bet. He said, quote, 
surely you weren't talking about bringing those people into this church. So she responded, quote, I told him, no, I'm talking about walking those people across your $30,000 lawn into your $300,000 house and sitting their asses on the furniture this church bought you. She was then removed from the finance committee. My queen. Uh-huh. My queen. Uh-huh. She, she stayed in the church and kept her faith, but she said, I questioned everyone else's. Wow. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, like the point. Right. Anyway. So every time somebody told her that, like, they deserved it, it was God's punishment for their sins or the way they lived or whatever. She would always say, no one did anything wrong. This is a virus. These people aren't dying of AIDS. They're living with it. And apparently every time one of the AIDS mostly men, sometimes women, that she was caring for would be like, maybe I brought this on myself. Maybe I deserved this. She would be like, you did not do anything wrong. This is a virus. Sweet angels all around. I know. I know. Over the years, she cared for a thousand dying men. She took them to appointments, helped them fill out forms, picked up their medications. She sat with them through the depression and the fear And she can't remember the exact number, but she's pretty sure that 43 of them are buried in her cemetery and multiple more. Their ashes are scattered there. She said, what a. What an incredible lady. Wow. Can you imagine facing death a a thousand times? A thousand times. For strangers, first off, and for. For people who you know that you are probably the only person that cares. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. She said her daughter would help her. They would dig little holes together. And she said she doesn't remember exactly how many people are buried in her cemetery. But she does remember exactly how many ministers, pastors, priests came to pray over them. And it's zero. They never came. So she learned to conduct her own funerals for these people and pray over them and do what she thought would put them to rest would, you know, whatever, because literally no one else came this. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Oh man. Wow. This article put it in a beautiful way. It said a hymn she would hear again and again over the next decade. Sure. Judgment, yawning hellfire, abandonment on a platter of scripture. She estimates she worked with more than a thousand people dying of AIDS over the course of the years. Of those, she said only a handful of families didn't turn their backs on their loved ones. She called every single parent and quote, they hung up on me. They cussed me out. They prayed like I was a demon on the phone and they had to get me off. Prayed while they were on the phone. Just crazy. Just ridiculous. They're kids like they're family members. Yeah. So some of her... I called them patients. I don't know what else to, yeah, you know, um, some of the people that she cared for. Uh, she had to help them fill out their own death certificate because she didn't know, like, mother's maiden names and all this random information. So she said she'd order a pizza. They'd eat pizza together and fill out their death certificate. What the fuck? Hmm? She managed to get funding from some donations, but she mostly paid for things out of her pocket from her real estate salary. Slowly, though, people started to secretly help her. 
And so like some people in the church would give her money secretly. There was a banker, I think, who like flew someone to an appointment secretly. Super, supermarket workers would like the food that was past date, but still fine. They would leave it in a specific spot for her so that she like had food to give people. Um, but there was a gay bar in Little Rock called Discovery. Oh, oh God. This is the part that's going to make me cry probably. Oh man. So the owner of Discovery heard about what she was doing and he did everything he could to help. He started hosting drag shows where all of the money earned would go to her. And she said it paid for medication. Sometimes it paid her rent, but she would have been able to do none of it without the Queens. Oh my God. Yeah. So did she have, I, you might've talked about this and I missed it. Does she have like a place that they're all staying too? Or like, where are all these people staying? I mean, anywhere around. Yeah. Anywhere she she can find. She would go to them. Oh, Oh, okay. That makes sense. Um, So a lot of pharmacies at the time refused to carry AIDS medications or ACT. So a lot of times when pharmacy clerks figured out who she was, they would insist that she take the pen she was using because they didn't want to touch it. And they would go in the back, bring out Lysol and like spray her out of the pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, but once that's not how I know. Okay. And I was looking up. So, I read through like the timeline of AIDS and they already knew easily before then that it was transmitted by blood. Right. And so all of this was just, yeah. Um, So once some of the men that she was caring for died, she would keep their medications and made like a stockpile of AZT and antibiotics because somebody would ultimately come along that needed it. Right. Yeah. Um, So Norman Jones, the owner of discovery, he ended up starting Norman. a charity. I know. I know. What a sweet, like, hero's name. I know. Norman Jones owns a gay bar in Little Rock, Arkansas. Also, that's probably a rough gig. It's got to be a rough gig. I mean, it's probably a rough gig now, it's honestly. It's a rough gig now. But it, that's got to be a gig. rough gig in the 80s. Yeah. Jeez. Um, so he ends up starting a charity group called Helping People with AIDS in 1988. And she worked there for a long time. And every year, the performers and the bartenders would choose one night. They would throw this big everything, and all of the proceeds from that night would go to helping people with AIDS. And they still do it every year. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. So in researching her, there's a whole bunch of specific stories about specific men that I'm not going to get into because woof. Yeah, I bet. But there. There's one, there's one that I have to. Okay. So there's this young man named Billy. He was a drag performer. He had this cute little red dress that he wore in his performances. He was in his early 20s. She met him before he even got diagnosed. And his family oh, abandoned how him. how hard, too. I mean, geez, this poor lady. I mean, I cannot. This poor lady and obviously these poor people. <laughs> like, not just, just yes. the, all of these poor people. Yes hard life so his family abandons him and the week before he died he weighed 55 pounds what she said she could lift him with her forearms like so after a doctor's appointment she's driving him around trying to cheer him up he's in this deep depression because obviously he knows he's dying 
they passed a zoo and he mentioned kind of like haphazardly that he'd always wanted to ride an elephant, but never got the chance. So she pulls a U-turn, goes back to the zoo and she got him on an elephant. And she still, she still has a photo of him riding an elephant and she still has his red dress. I have so many questions. Wait, so like most elephants at most zoos are not like rideable elephants. <laughs> so she just rolled into the Little Rock, Arkansas Zoo and was like, listen, we're going to fucking ride that elephant and you're not going to tell us shit. I get I don't know if rules were different in the 80s or what, but like she got him on that elephant. I am so deeply obsessed with this lady. I mean, it's yeah. It's wow. So she said whenever it all became too much, she would go fishing and try to clear her mind. But she said not all of it was awful. She saw so much love. Quote, I watched these men take care of their companions and watch them die. I have seen them go and hold them up in the shower. They would hold them while I washed them. They would carry them back to bed. They would dry them off and put lotion on them. They did that until the very end, knowing that they were going to be that person before long. Now you tell me that's not love and devotion. I don't know a lot of straight people that would do that. Honestly. I honestly, I love this one so much. Um, yeah. So eventually she gains national attention because her quote unquote patients were living two years longer than the national average. And so the CDC and all these people are like, what are you doing? How are you I'm- doing Treating them like people. And she was like, it's physical touch. Yeah. I don't touch them with gloves. I don't touch. I, I touched. I nurtured. I love them. She was like, yeah. I was sure that it all came down to love. And that's got to do so much for like the patient's will to live too. Like if you're being told over and over that nobody gives a shit that you and all of your friends and family, not your family, but all of your friends and chosen family are dying. And because no one cares. You brought it on yourself. Like that's mm-hmm. gotta that's gotta just sap any will to live that you Which, have. So then to have a lady come in and say, No, 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 you're fine. It's, it's not your virus. fault. It's not yeah, your fault. Like, yeah. The I think back to the first guy in the hospital. Yeah. He'd been there for six weeks. Which means he'd been treated like garbage and no one had touched him no one had treated him like a person in at least six weeks yeah anyway so it said that she told everybody like the answer is love and nurture and attention but it doesn't say whether or not they did that yeah you know yeah so eventually better education medication less stigma it kind of made her work obsolete so she moves to Florida. She becomes a funeral director and a fishing guide. And then, I know, just the cutest lady. When this Bill is the lady that I picture, like, wrestling alligators just with her bare hands. Because sure. they stroll into her funeral home in Florida. Sure. You know? I, I don't put it past her. No, Why not? not uh, so when her old childhood friend Bill Clinton is elected president. God, what the fuck? She is at the first inauguration and she wore Billy's red dress. Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. She then worked with the White House as an AIDS education consultant. 
2010, she had a stroke and she thinks it was brought on early by the stress of caring for a thousand people as they died when nobody else would. Uh, she had to relearn how to speak, eat, walk. Oh my God. Whole nine yards. In 2013, she went to bat for three literal children who were removed from an elementary school because administrators found out that one of them may have AIDS. So they were kicked out of their elementary school. And she was like, listen, motherfuckers, it is 2013, you assholes. Yeah. Yeah. Like it. And their children. And their children. It talked about in the article, like she, her knee jerk reaction was, how are we still dealing with this? Yeah. Yeah. How How is this still what's happening? Yeah. So she always makes sure to know that she is not the only one who did this work, but one of the only ones who survived. So she calls herself the keeper of memory. Recently, she moved back to Arkansas. She's always made sure that the file cemetery has been taken care of. It's considered almost a pilgrimage for LGBTQ plus folks who know the story, want to honor those who died in the 80s and 90s. Uh, She said, quote, someday I'd love to get a monument that says this is what happened. In 1984, it started. They just kept coming and coming, and they knew they would be remembered, loved, and taken care of, and that someone would always say a kind word over them when they died. In 2017, she was awarded the Tom Wayand Unsung Hero Award by the National AIDS Memorial for her work in the darkest days of the epidemic. She is now retired and 61, living in Northwest Arkansas. She listens to NPR. Her favorite movie is Apollo 13. Her biggest pet peeve is bullies. And the thing she hates most is hypocrisy. And that is the story of Ruther. Ruther. That is the story of Ruth Coker Burks, the cemetery angel. I'm so jealous that you found that lady before I did. What the fuck? I'm like, I'm speechless about this. It's. Okay, so while I was, I have a couple of statistics that I wanted to touch that, like, were in the timeline. Okay, so as of 1997, the approximate worldwide death count of AIDS was 6.4 million. The approximate number of HIV-positive people was 22 million, which is larger than the total population of the continent of Australia. As of 2002, the cumulative deaths in the U.S. was over 500,000. So the my there were some incredible articles about this, but the one that was like my first deep dive, one that I was just like, oh, my God. It said, quote, it's hard to convince people these days that one lonely person can budge the vast stone wheel of apathy. The truth, though, is the same as it ever was. One pair of willing hands might inspire thousands or millions to push. That's the world. That's the way the world is changed hand by hand. That's like the perfect summation of both of our ladies this week. A hundred percent. As soon as you were talking, I was like, we kind of have a theme again. I'm amazed. by like, that. kind of have a theme again. Wow. Yeah. That's the cemetery angel. Ruth Burks. I love that. I was searching for her. So the reason I found her is because I'd heard about someone who in it was in my, I guess, telling was called the AIDS mom. 
And so I was searching because I knew there was one woman specifically who cared for men dying of AIDS when their families abandoned them. So I knew she existed. Yeah. But I had no idea everything. And then I found her on Pinterest of all places. And, you know, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. It's crazy. She's still alive. Like we, we currently occupy the same planet as that lady. Yeah. She's 61. That's so young. Yeah. Her daughter, she's got three grandkids. She likes to take them fishing. God. Like they're just. An angel. Yeah. An angel. So to source my shit, uh, there was a website called factlive.org, the CDC, nationalaidsmemorial.com, or .org, excuse me. Uh, The article that the hand-by-hand quote was taken from was from the Arkansas Times by David Kuhn. It's beautiful. Uh, And then there's a really gorgeous article with a ton of quotes uh, on Arkansas Online by a guy named Gary Hines. Wow. There you go. That was great. Pretty. I feel very inspired after this episode. <laughs> Dude, I, I feel very inspired and very uh, uh, inadequate. <laughs> yeah. I was looking up. I thought I was going to do a politician this week. So I was like looking up all these like badass politicians. And then I was like, wait a minute. There was somebody on my list that I was like really excited about. And I went back through it. I was like, oh, yeah. 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 Wow. That was great. That was great. Good work. Good babes. Uh, Do you have a babe of the week, my friend? I do. Well, I I kind of have two for two (gasps) different reasons. Me too. Okay, great. Um, And I can't, unfortunately, stay on for very long because. Totally fine. I get it. But, um. Sorry, all of our doors are really sticky, too, and Ellie has figured this out, and we'll just Kool-Aid man bust her way into bedrooms and bathrooms, and so that is that just happened. That is shocking, because my very bold, I need attention dog, if a door is cracked, she will sit there and whine until one of us comes open to open the door. No, Ellie's all into it. She will Evan came out to the living room the other day and was like, I was just peeing, and Tiny Cat just, like, busted her way into the bathroom. Yeah, that'll happen. Sorry. So that's just, um, well, so my, my like entertainment lady Mm -hmm. is definitely, it's not really a lady. It's just kind of the whole show of the end of the fucking world on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Watch this. No, but I, I keep hearing that I need to. It's lovely. It's depressed. It's, it's a depressing show made by depressed people for depressed people. And it is. Ashley Rose Woman was the one who told me I needed to watch it. So this makes you, perfect sense to yeah. me that yeah. Ashley loves this show because it's beautiful dark. and so dark and so bleak and has such a it's it's a perfectly contained two seasons. The creators already said she's not making a third season because she feels like they ended it. Like it's perfectly contained. It's beautiful. It's a great show for when you're depressed and feeling shitty about the world because you get to watch other people feel shitty about the world but have kind of an uplifting. Yeah, it's nice. It's very yeah. nice. Um, so everybody go watch that. Uh, and then my actual babe is hands down, without a doubt, 
motherfucking Stacey Abrams. Stacey fucking Abrams. She's one of mine too. Of course motherfucking she Stacey Abrams. Of course she is. Mm-hmm. She fucking flipped Georgia. And, and that's the thing that you were talking about too, with your babe is that she's very vocal about the fact that she is not the only one that did it. She is just the, the biggest, most recognizable name that people know. And because she was the one. Who, she's, she's the one who convinced all the other hands to help her push the fucking wheel. Yeah. Yeah. Stacey Abrams. Uh, yeah. Made, made history. I mean, fucking Georgia, Georgia turned blue. I would also like to say she's the, this is the first time she's made history. Cause I feel like there's no yes. way this woman is done. No, I could gush about Stacey Abrams forever. Anyway, uh, who is your non-Stacey Abrams babe of the week? My non-Stacey Abrams babe of the week. Uh, Maybe that should just be what our new yeah, category is. Yeah, Stacey every, Abrams is always our babe of the week. And, and then from there, it's just non-Stacey Abrams. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's actually a repeat babe. It's Chanel Miller. Um, I finished her memoir a few days ago. I cried through that whole book. It's... She puts into words what I know a lot of survivors feel but don't know how to verbalize. Yeah. Um, it is so good. It yeah. is so good. And repeatedly, she calls attention to, like, every single article about him, every single whatever claiming, you know, the alleged whatever, 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 would have his swim times at the bottom. Right. Fuck off. Do you, like, where do we get, like, unknown victim, whatever, whatever. She can run a mile in this flat. She's painted this many paintings. She's gone to the... She doesn't get any of that. She doesn't get any, you know, like, it's just like... Mm. It's it's a brutal book, and every single human needs to read it, but specifically straight men. I wish there was a way we could just force them to read and actually understand that book, but they, we can't, that's not, it's like you can't force someone to participate in therapy. Um, wow. It's, it's huge. And she talks about all the time, like, I'm not some huge motivation or some whatever. Like I just got frustrated and here's my story. And like, thankfully for her, it worked out. Yeah. Like they caught the guy. They press charges. She acknowledges, like, I'm one of the very, very few people that was able to go down this horrendous fucking road that is a trial. Yeah. But for so many people, they don't have enough evidence, so it goes nowhere. Right. It was, yeah, it was, it's an incredible book, and everybody should read Oh, also it's called Know My Name by Chanel Miller, and it's great, and she's a marvelous human, and... Um, uh, we should... Post a thing of her Instagram so people go follow her too. Hell yes. She's a great person to follow. She's a great person to follow. Her New York Times doodles. Top notch. Like all the election chaos is going on. She's like, here's some ducks in a bubble bath. What you Top got for notch. me? Yeah. Great person. Who? Anyway. All right. You got to go. I we love you. So many amazing ladies. This yes. <laughs> My soul is refilled. Woo! Yeah. 
Um, well, I'm not doing anything tomorrow night, I don't think. So if you are also free, we could do our nightmare sesh. But if not, I understand as well. Uh, I should be. Yeah. Okay. I'm not. I can't think of anything because I mean we're home forever. Maybe I'll get a certain Evan Dodd to guest star on that one. Oh my god. It happened to him just as much as it happened to me. Yeah. So. Maybe I'll. Oh my god. A secret guest dude pod. Secret secret guest fiance pod. Do you want me to leave that in? Your face. Your face. Yeah, it's fine. Oh, my God. We haven't even talked about it, you guys. But fucking Reagan is engaged. And I think about it literally every day and want to poop myself out of excitement. But I haven't done it yet. So we'll see. Reagan's experience that would be for you. Yeah. Listen, I'm just saying that if I ever do poop myself out of excitement because of your engagement news... I'm going to text you immediately and then we're going to have to have like another little bite-sized episode just about that whole experience no, and then we'll lose a lot of listeners. So really I should keep it contained. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> or we could just have a conversation where we don't record it and post it for the public. Like people, we could just, mm-hmm. it's, you know, that just sounds boring. Sleep, sleep on it. That sounds boring. Ooh, in my new bed. That's in your new home. Well, this was, this was great. Deeply lovely and deeply lovely, deeply lovely. Um, And I loved this and I will talk to you tomorrow. And then I'll, I'll probably edit these at the same time so that we can just post them at the same time. I say we post one like two days after the next. So so it's like, boom, boom, you know? (laughs) Okay. Um, But yeah, I love you and I will talk to you tomorrow. And you know what? Stay bitching. <laughs> this is the first time that it's ever been said. <laughs> I could not stop laughing when that happened. I love that. Deep I, in my both, soul. Yeah. I, it just makes me so happy. I love it so deep into my heart that it's basically in my stomach. I'm, I'm happy about that. Eat your you pizza. So put something actually in your stomach. Oh, yeah. Okay. Except for just white claw. No. Fine. Um, tell Trevor I said hello. I will. Tell Evan Dodd the same things. I will. Alright. I love my, my dog. I'm waving her paw. You can't see it. She hates it. I love you too. <laughs> Bye. Bye.